Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is episode 13, Alfonso III. This episode of History of Portugal is brought to you by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support. And thank you so much to Anna for signing up already. Also, you can help others find this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on your platform of choice. This episode, we will explore the reign of Alfonso III, also known as Alfonso the Great. We will take a look at some of the pivotal events and conquests that have defined his legacy for centuries. The reign of Alfonso III is covered by several different chronicles, but many parts are poorly recorded and there are the usual contradictions between these histories that we have to deal with. But please keep in mind that there are always differing interpretations by various historians on what exactly is being said or not said to us by our limited sources. Now, we won't get caught up in going over the relative merits of the different sources and the debates surrounding each of them. So, as per usual, I will strive to highlight some of the differences while keeping the narrative in motion at the same time. And now, let's get started. Following the death of Ordoño I on May 27, 866, the 13-year-old Alfonso III was ready and able to step into the role that he was born into. But unsurprisingly, his ascension to the throne was challenged by a fellow noble. We are told that the crown was seized by a Galician count 
called Fruella. By his name, it's speculated that Fruella may have been a member of the ruling dynastic family. The Albadense Chronicle states, quote, Fruella, Earl of Galicia, was trying to overthrow the kingdom by means of tyranny, and the king betook himself to Castile, unquote. While the teenaged king was forced to flee to the west, forces loyal to him attacked and killed Fruella along with his men in Oviedo. It's reported that Fruella had been entangled in a legal battle over land claims with the Sea of Santiago, and he subsequently confiscated the disputed estate when he seized the kingdom. However, the land was then returned to the church in a document issued by the restored Alfonso III in January of 867, indicating that Fruella's rule had been quite brief. There is disagreement in the sources regarding whether or not Alfonso was the only son of Ordoño I. Though there are authors that indicate that he was one of five brothers, and this inconsistency in the material may be due to the fact that according to some chronicles, all four of his brothers revolted against him. The omission of these family members shouldn't be too surprising, given that some of these histories were written in a court-centered setting and were written close in time to these events. So the scribes needed to toe the propaganda line quite closely or face the consequences. The Chronicle of Sampiru, on the other hand, refers to a brother of Alfonso who was also named Fruella, who apparently was the ringleader of the siblings that were plotting to assassinate the king. They were found out and hastily fled to Castile, but to no avail. Fruella and his brothers Nunu, Vermudu, and Oduario were captured, and in punishment, they were all blinded which I guess was the better alternative to being executed. One of the brothers, Vermudu, somehow managed to escape from Oviedo and actually set himself up as ruler of Astorga for seven years, allegedly with the aid of the Arabs. When he was eventually kicked out of Astorga by Alfonso III, he fled and took refuge in Al-Andalus but we're not given any further details on his fate after that. Despite the initial challenges to his rule, once his position was secured, we can see that Alfonso immediately set in motion the rapid expansion of the southwestern frontier of the Kingdom of Galicia into what is now Portugal. With the capture and repopulation of Braga, Porto, Lamego and Coimbra, among other settlements. In 867, the year following his coronation, there is the first mention of a cleric named Naustu being appointed as the bishop of the city of Coimbra, along with a mention of a certain Branderic as bishop of the city of Lamego. In the subsequent year of 868, an Asturian noble named Vimara Perej became lord of the great city of Porto. Two years later, Braga is referred to for the very first time in the sources 
as territory belonging to the kingdom. It's also stated that in 872, the city of Shavsh was conquered by Count Oduariu. Our sources tell us that once land was conquered or annexed by the Asturians, it was divided into administrative units, referred to as counties, territories, and civitates. Civitates basically refers to a town or city along with its surrounding suburban areas. We are also told that in that same year, a council of powerful nobles and church officials was held in the city of Guimarães to discuss the settlement of territories that would one day be part of modern-day Portugal. In this conclave, we see for the first time the name of Bishop Freduzinho of Braga and Guimarães. There is also a suggestion that Bishop Justu of Porto, who was the first prelate of that city after the conquest of 868, officially joined the diocese and government of the city at that time. Before the end of Alfonso's first decade in office, the politically organized community of Anagia was formed, which was the precursor to the modern municipality of Penafiel. Then, in 878, the official annexation of Coimbra was completed. The Chronicle of Alfonso III states, Quote, he depopulated Coimbra, which was held by the enemy, and afterward populated it with Galicians. Unquote. As you can see, there were a myriad of different people involved in the conquest and consolidation of these new Asturian territories. And that's good to remember, because when we hear of a king or kingdom conquering lands, we sometimes tend to imagine one monolithic will at the center of a spiderweb directing and controlling everything. But these types of ventures were the result of a lot of people working in conjunction with each other and also against each other, as various groups were prone to taking their own initiatives. And the pattern that has been presenting itself here is one where middle-ranking nobility typically counts, took the lead in the conquests and or annexations of towns and cities. They were then closely followed by ecclesiastical agents that were responsible for establishing or reinforcing the diocesan governing structure of the church. We then have the lower-tier nobility coming into the picture, to whom were given less important possessions and military responsibilities. We also have evidence that smaller strategic sites may have been handed over to Muslim allies that were at odds with the reigning emir. The consensus among historians is that the sizable territorial expansion of the Asturian kingdom at this time was possible in large part thanks to the breakdown of Umayyad control over many areas of the emirate. And it's interesting to note that sources mention Emir Muhammad campaigning quite frequently in the Ebro Valley, attacking the kingdom of Pamplona between 870 and 880. But there is barely any mention of Galicia or the areas surrounding Leon. One of the reasons those areas were no longer on the Emir's radar 
were the near non-stop rebellions that the lower and middle marches were generating. In response, several campaigns were launched by the Umayyads to try and put down uprisings in Toledo, Merida, Soida, and other cities. Additionally, a serious revolt broke out in Malaga, which opened a new front in the south of the Emirate, and deepened the crisis faced by the Umayyad regime, further distracting them from whatever was happening in the northwest. But we'll get into all of that next episode. The principal noble families with interests in the southwestern region of the kingdom seem to have pursued a policy of strategic marriages and concentrated land acquisition in areas that for the most part were stabilized and over which they had the most influence over. For example, the descendants of Vimara Puresh concentrated their land and influence around the city of Braga. But remarkably, these families also seem to have maintained a deliberate dispersion of goods in their territories, a kind of regional reserve that would allow them to act directly on this or that area should the need arise. This particular expansionist strategy was not unique to what would one day become the north and center of Portugal. We see the same process repeating itself throughout the southern reaches of the Asturian kingdom. And it was a pretty clever and effective method of extending royal authority over lands that had been more or less independent thus far. You send high-ranking nobles, followed by administrative clerics, who were then followed by colonial free peasants. This would, in effect, overwhelm the local noble and elite power structures already present in these areas. And unexpectedly, it seems like in a lot of cases, these annexations occurred without much violence. Once the West was secured, further annexations spread east to the middle Dodo Valley to include the cities of Zamora and Simancas in 893 and 899, respectively. But of course, relatively peaceful seizure of independent communities was only part of the equation. An organized and thought-out plan to weaken regions under Muslim control was also underway. This weakening was accomplished by vicious attacks and scorched-earth tactics on towns and cities under Muslim rule that were close to the Asturian border. But violence wasn't the only tool used by Alfonso III. There is also evidence for intense diplomatic contacts between the Asturians and Muslim rebels that proved to be quite advantageous to both parties. In 874, the 21-year-old Alfonso married a woman named Jimena, who was probably a member of the ruling dynasty of Pamplona, and whom certain chroniclers claim was related to Charles the Bald, the king of West Francia. Jimena and Alfonso would end up having six sons. For all of his successes in conquest, Alfonso, much like the emir of Córdoba, had to deal with never-ending discontent on the home front. 
as we have reports of a number of rebellions and coups against the Asturian king. For example, and we're not given many details on this one, but in 875, we hear of a Count Falcidiu who rebelled against the crown and who was promptly killed. Alfonso proceeded to seize all of his assets along with all of his forts and castles. The king then led his army to the city of Lugo, where apparently Falcidius' co-conspirators were holed up in. Two brothers were singled out for punishment, Florencio and Alberto Tirtunis. But their sentences were reduced to monetary fines upon the intercession of their palace magnate friends. And that goes to show just how tenuous the position of king really was at that time. You could be found guilty of conspiracy to overthrow the crown, but still be powerful enough and connected enough to get away with it. And this is not an isolated incident. I was frankly astonished at the amount of murderous conspiracies against the king I ran across during my research that were found out by the king and that were merely punished by property confiscation or fines. Of course, this was highly contingent upon the relative status of the perpetrators. These rebellions also go some way to explain why, in particular circumstances, Christian kings installed Muslim rulers in their regions. They served as a counterbalance to ambitious Christian nobles. Since they owed their position to the sovereign and didn't have any underlying loyalties to the local power structures. In 878, Abu Walid, who is described as Consul of Spain and Counselor of King Muhammad, led a raid on Galicia that ended in failure. He was captured and had to leave his two brothers and his son as hostages, while he collected a ransom of 100,000 solidi of gold. In the same year of 878, Al-Mundir, son of Emir Muhammad I, most likely realizing the military importance of the towns of Astorga and Leon, as the launching pads for all of these expansionist Asturian expeditions, made the decision to attack these settlements in order to finally cripple the Asturian military capability. Deciding that the best approach was to form two separate armies, the expedition is described as consisting of two columns, the first one from Córdoba and the second one made up of contingents from Toledo, Talamanca, and Guadalajara. As expected, we aren't given the kinds of details we would like to have about the fighting that took place that became known as the Battle of Polvorosa. What we are told is that in the summer of 878, the second army was led by Prince Almundir and by the general Ibn Hanan. The Umayyad army's way was blocked by an Asturian one, near the modern-day city of Benevente. What followed was an enormous battle that resulted in a spectacular and bloody victory for the Asturians. From the Chronicle, quote, But the most glorious king, 
roaming from either side, rushed upon them into the aforesaid place of Povorosa, where about 12,000 were slain. End quote. Although we can't trust these numbers, the Muslim histories seem to confirm that a great defeat did take place, where the casualties were indeed very high. Upon learning of this disaster, the army of Cordoba decided to immediately turn around and retreat, though some sources claim that this Cordoban army was pursued and destroyed. Though it seems like historians don't put much credibility on this particular account. There is also disagreement between our Muslim and Christian sources on the whereabouts of Prince Al-Mundir this year. The Muslim sources claim that in 878, the prince was actually running a campaign in the Ebro Valley and make no mention of him being present in the west of the peninsula at all. So, there's that. This historian victory was a major reason for a three-year truce that was agreed upon between the king and the emir. However, as soon as the truce ended in 881, Alfonso III decided to take advantage of the disarray that the emirate found itself in thanks to all those multiple revolts and rebellions that were occurring. He led an army deep into the Lower March, or as the Chronicle calls it, Lusitania, still using the old Roman provincial divisions. He was able to do so because at this time, Alfonso allied himself to a powerful Muwalid warlord named Abdalahman ibn Marwan, who controlled a vast territory south of the city of Coimbra. This allowed Alfonso's army to have safe passage and supply bases in Muslim-held territory. On his way south, Alfonso is described as attacking and laying waste to the cities of Idenya Velha and Coira. On his approach to Merida, when he was about 10 miles from the city, the Asturian army then crossed the river Anna and fought a battle against the Numayid army on Mount Oxifer. This was another incredible victory for Alfonso, with 15,000 of his opponents killed. Our Muslim sources don't so much focus on the battle, but on the figure of Ibn Marwan. Quote, Alfonso Ibn Ordoño, King of Galicia, came out with a large army of all the Christians. Among the components of his forces was the impious traitor, Abdalahman Ibn Marwan, who had sought asylum in his court, taking refuge in his lands. And as they crossed the Tagus River, ordered the leaders to turn towards the city of Merida, where his ally Ibn Marwan was from, unquote. We are told that this battle was so devastating that the emir was unable to even harass the Asturian army on his victorious march back north. This military defeat, along with the revolt in Malaga, is what convinced the emir to begin negotiations of a peace treaty with Alfonso, which was concluded two years later. Over the course of which, the body of the Cordoban martyr Eulogius 
who was executed in 859, was sent to Oviedo as a diplomatic gift. It's been suggested that it was during this time of rampant conquest that the court of Alfonso III began to push the idea that the Asturian kingdom was really just a continuation of the old Visigothic kingdom into overdrive. As mentioned in previous episodes, the logical purpose of this propaganda campaign was to justify the conquests that they were engaged in. It's during this reign that the mythology of Pelagius began to be created. The chronicle elevates Pelagius to a high-ranking member of the Visigothic court, and therefore as someone who possessed a true claim to the Visigothic crown. It's also during Alphonse's reign that a chapel was built in a cave in Covadonga, where allegedly Pelagius lived for a time while launching raids against the Arab and Berber forces. In 908, Alfonso commissioned a gold cross to house a much older wooden one, long venerated in Oviedo, which the Asturians claimed was carried at the head of the army of Pelagius when he fought the Battle of Covadonga. However, carbon-14 analysis done on this cross seems to indicate that it was actually from the time of Alfonso III rather than from the time of Pelagius. When he returned home, Alfonso devoted himself to rebuilding the churches of Oviedo and constructing one or more palaces for himself. Remarkably, some buildings of his reign actually survive more or less intact, and it's theorized that earlier constructions, such as San Julián de los Prados in Oviedo, received their distinctive fresco decorations at this time since there are strong stylistic similarities between it and the less well-preserved traces of frescoes in other churches that he built, such as San Salvador de Valdedios. The last part of Alfonso III's reign faced a lot of difficulties, including an attempt by a quote-unquote great army of Arabs led by a prophet called Al-Ahman to take the city of Zamora in 901, which we will also get into in the next episode. There were many plots against the king's life and throne, including one in which his eldest son Garcia was involved in. Garcia's subsequent capture and imprisonment seems to have triggered a wider revolt by all of his sons, leading to Alfonso's forced abdication. According to the Chronicle of Sampiru, he asked his son Garcia to let him lead one last great expedition against the Arabs, which was apparently successful. He then made his way to the city of Zamora, where on December 20th, 910, Alfonso III passed away. His body was then taken to Oviedo for burial. He was 58 years old and had ruled the Asturias for 44 years. So, 
it may come as a bit of a shock that we don't really know that much more about the reign of such a towering figure of early medieval Iberian history. As mentioned in the beginning of this episode, this reign is poorly recorded. And a lot of what we do know is the result of painstaking investigative work done by historians that have had to scour not only the problematic chronicles, but church records and archaeological finds in order to piece together some kind of cohesive timeline of events. The death of Alfonso III will trigger a catalyst that will be felt for generations. And that is the partitioning of the kingdom between his sons into the smaller kingdoms that we are familiar with. Namely, the kingdoms of Galicia, Leon, Asturias, and Castile. But before we jump into that particular family drama, in the next episode, we will cross the border into the ever more chaotic Al-Andalus and find out just how bad the situation had become in the Emirate of Cordoba. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.